0: So today we'll start with a question that came from Dagda, um, and she, she asks, Tom, in the introduction of Section 5 of My Big Toe, you say that you purposefully neglected many interesting and important concepts from this section because they fall beyond the scope of your effort to present a comprehensive model of how the larger reality works, and that you had no choice but to remain tightly focused so readers would not get too overwhelmed. Is it possible to discuss with us any of the concepts that you left out? Please spill the beans, Tom.
1: <laughs> well, um, that was the chapter. That was in, uh, Section 5, is really the beginning of Book 3. And the way, a little bit above in that same paragraph, I talk about in the, next, the first 12 chapters of, of Book 3, I'm going to talk a lot about the logical ramifications, the logical implications of my big toe theory. And there are many of those. It's not that there are some some things that I just didn't want to tell and I need to spill the beans because you haven't heard me talk about it. You've heard me talk about all these other things there that I was referring to as I didn't want to go into at this point. I've talked about all of those uh, in interviews and other talks and questions and lots of things. What I meant was that when you talk about logical ramifications, I tried to hit just the very basics there in, in the book, but there were many things that we could have talked about. Uh, we could have talked about, um, you know, I, I introduced the databases there, the, uh, the the past and the probable future database, but I didn't go into any, discussions about what you could do with those. I didn't talk about, uh, you know, talking to your dead relatives. I didn't talk about using your mind to, uh, modify future probability, at least not very much. Um, if I touched on those ideas at all, I, it just was very cursory. We didn't talk about, uh, things like, uh, you know, remote viewing or out of body or how they interact with those databases that uh, when you see auras or do the remote viewing or whatever, you're really gathering data out of those databases. We didn't talk about, we talked about time and how we got local time, but we didn't talk about uh, um, how time differs from place to, you know, from uh, reality to reality. Didn't talk too much about uh, the origins and, and, uh, you know, kind of the fundamentals of time. Where did the time initiate? So there's lots of things that were kind of on the the menu, if you will, when you're talking about logical, implications of my big toe theory that we could have gone on for another you know a couple of hundred pages just running down all those rabbit holes which many people would find interesting and uh, are basic it helps you understand but uh, it wasn't the time to to go through all of those things so that's what I meant but I have talked about all these things uh, in other discussions so nothing's really been left out in the the larger picture if you look at all the YouTube uh, videos um, you'll get all that uh, that I was talking about is, is already uh, come out on the public record. Okay, okay. and
0: you feel completely that that's all been covered already.
1: What was that, Dagda?
0: Sorry. So no, i really just reiterating what you said. So you feel that all, everything that you said in the, in the book that maybe you have left out that's all been covered already in all the this
1: and on the MBT forum. Yeah, mostly I'd say that's true. You know, there are probably still some logical um, implications that uh, we haven't uh, discussed, and some of those are things I haven't even thought about yet. You know, as, as people ask interesting questions and uh, new, new issues come out, as, as you notice, if you follow along uh, my, my interviews and talks and workshops, they, they change from time to time. New material kind of pops up And I talk about things that uh, I hadn't really talked about before. And these are basically just logical implications that were always there. But until somebody, you know, points a finger at them or until it becomes interesting, then we just don't tend to think of it. So I can't say that there aren't more that won't come out, but there aren't any more that, uh, you know, there's nothing that I'm holding in reserve or, uh, you know, uh, not talking about for some strange reason. No, there aren't any of those, but there's... There's bound to be more, uh, you know, logical consequences that will pop out even long after I'm gone. You know, there will be people will be reading this and they'll they'll say, oh look, that, you know, that uh, explains how this happens. And and uh, so the logical consequences will be dug out for years and years to come. But no, I'm not holding thank back. <laughs> okay,
0: thank you. You're welcome. All right, thank you. Since you mentioned Tom. In this last question, um, you mentioned how time differs from one reality to the next. I'm going to bring out of sequence the questions and present uh, Raj's question, which is how does MBT explain time dilation?
1: Okay, time,
0: now,
1: yeah, if I'm that's, saying that
0: right. <laughs>
1: that's, that's right. In theory of relativity, particularly what's called special relativity, which was the, the initial uh, concept of relativity uh, Einstein uh, uh, penned. It was called special relativity, and special relativity basically took the fact that c is a constant. So he treated the speed of light as an unchanging constant. Then you just do a little bit of algebra. It's really not very complex. Uh, anybody in this group, almost anybody anywhere that's that's gone through uh, high school algebra could probably follow. The mathematics of special relativity. It's not. Uh, it's not a very deep uh, uh, mathematical uh, explanation. But anyway, uh, what he found, what the math told him, was that some very strange things happen as one moves uh, at higher and higher velocities. As one approaches the speed of light, these effects become very noticeable. In our daily speeds, they still happen, but they just aren't noticeable. And, you know, as we run along while we're out jogging. You know, there are some relativistic effects, but they are probably in the 15th or 20th decimal place. So nobody ever notices them. They're not really uh, measurable. They're so small. But anyway, time dilation is one of them. And that is that as you travel uh, faster and faster, time for you slows down. And this was a uh, an idea that uh, was discussed a great deal in the early days of relativity, and it was called the, the twin paradox. It was one of the ways that it was discussed. Two twins, two biological twins. Uh, one of them, uh, um, you know, gets in a rocket ship and goes off uh, at, you know, let's say, uh, you know, 0.9 the speed of light, and uh, then turns around and, you know, does that for... Uh, a fairly long time, turns around and comes back at 0.9 the speed of light, so it's traveled all this time, gets out of the rocket, and walks up to his twin. Now, what would you expect? Well, classically, you'd expect them both to be the same age because they're twins after all in time's time, but that's not what relativity said. Rel- relativity says that the twin that was in the rocket ship will be much younger than the twin who was left behind, and that is... From the twin who was left behind's viewpoint, the rocket ship goes off and comes back 50 years later, and the twin left behind has aged 50 years. From the twin in the rocket ship, the rocket ship went off, and maybe a year or two went by, and it came back. And, it's, and that twin's only aged a year or two. So when the two meet, one of them now is, you know, 48 years younger, than the other, as far as their physical appearance and, and uh, you know, all the measures that you can think of of age, uh, so that is called uh, the length contraction. Uh, well, let's not call it. that's called time dilation. Another one is called length contraction, and that is that the faster you go, the closer your speed your speed approximates light speed. Things in the direction of your of your velocity. Get, is everybody hearing that? Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah.
1: hearing that. Let that go by. I can edit it out. Um, things in the direction of your velocity get shorter and shorter and shorter in that direction, in that uh, in that dimension. So if you start out with a meter stick and it goes faster and faster and faster, if you're in the meter stick, you know, everything seems normal. If you're traveling with the meter stick, then the meter stick always looks like it's a meter. But if you're outside the meter stick looking at another frame, a different uh, inertial frame, looking at the meter stick go by, then the meter stick looks to be shorter and shorter and shorter. Okay. Um, now, of course, if you actually could get to the speed of light, which Einstein said you can't, but if you could, then the meter stick would get so short that it would disappear. It would become zero length. Time would stand still at that point. And the third, the third strange thing that happened was that mass increases with speed. So that, uh, that meter stick, as it goes faster and faster and gets shorter and shorter, it also gets more and more massive to where if you go to the, get all the way to the speed of light, it has an infinite mass. All right. Now those were kind of weird things that, uh, relativity theory, um, you know, we logically consistent with relativity theory, and because of those things, many people in the early days of relativity thought that relativity was obviously just not right. It couldn't be right because those things were just ridiculous. They were all non-intuitive and didn't make any sense. But each of those, each of those uh, things, each of the the uh, length contraction, the time dilation, and the increase in mass with velocity. All of those have been experimentally verified. That is exactly the way our reality works. And the first experiment that verified the time dilation was they took a radioactive element, probably cesium, as a very high vibration. Clocks are often run uh, from by cesium uh, vibrations. And they they uh, split a piece of cesium. They had uh, two identical vibrations. They took a piece, one and a half of that cesium, put it on a a satellite whizzed around, you know, at very high velocities around the Earth for a while, then brought it back and looked at it, and sure enough, it was slower. Time had slowed down for it. It had, it had lost time. So <clears throat> when they smashed particles at the big uh, particle collider, right, at CERN, they have to take into account... That the particle stream actually gets shorter and shorter the faster it goes, that its mass gets heavier, you see, and that time slows down because they have to time their magnets in order to give a little push to speed these things up. And if they don't take those relativistic considerations uh, into account, then they would fail. They wouldn't be able to to keep the particles accelerating and move them along. So this is a natural function of our physical reality. Now, how does it? How does that interact with? Um, you know, uh, conceptually with my big toe. Well, it doesn't really. My big toe doesn't really say anything about that other than my big toe explains why C is a constant, which is actually the the one fact that led to all these strange things. But other than that, the effects themselves are just a function of the rule set. That's just the way the rule sets written. If you have a, a virtual reality, you have um, you know, pixels, you can hop from pixel to pixel to pixel every delta t, then that's as fast as you can go. That defines the speed of light. And given that scenario, you find out that relative motion or that motion is relative to the inertial frame in which the motion is occurring. So you see one thing in one inertial frame, and what you see in a different inertial frame is relative, you see. It's relative to your frame. That's why they call it relativity. So what you see, the way physics looks to you is, is relative to the inertial frame that you're in. And that was, that was um, really the, the statement of uh, Einstein's special relativity, that there, there was no fundamental inertial frame, that all inertial frames are uh, relative to each other. So we don't, uh, you know, there's no special calculation. It's just a little bit of algebra. uh, Once you have C as a constant, to come out with those, uh, you know, come out with those uh, logical uh, consequences of C being constant. So what what MBT does is explains why C is constant, and the rest of it is just a little math.
0: Next question is from Oliver. Recently, a video went viral on YouTube showing how a cat saved a 4-year-old boy from a severe dog attack. You found this fascinating, so you started to ponder the event from an MBT viewpoint. It seems a rather unusual behavior that a cat attacks a dog to protect a human being, because earlier research has shown that cats show very little loyalty towards their owners compared to dogs. In this case, the cat actually risked his own life to save the boy. Um, coming from the viewpoint of consciousness of cats and dogs, um, was this the case?
1: It was what the case?
0: Was was it the case that the uh, cat actually risked his own life to save the boy? He, he uh, attacks a dog to protect this little boy, so
1: yeah i watched the video and uh you know is that is that the case that the cat did that well it certainly looked that way in the video now everybody knows that you can make a video that uh, looks like you know you can make anything you want happen on a video you know pink elephants can fly on a video so was the video uh a uh an actual video that is just exactly as it appears to be or was it something else well, of course, that's hard to tell. That's really impossible to tell. So let's just start with the assumption that the video was uh, uh, you know, a, not a doctored or manufactured video in any way, that it was just a, a real video, and what it's portraying is, is what happened. So if we'll start with that assumption, then we can answer the question that, yes, I don't know if you all watched it or not, but um, there's a, a, a dog comes along, little boy's playing in the yard, uh, dog uh, gets uh, a little uh aggressive grabs the grabs the boy or at least grabs his clothes and pulls at him and the cat flies off the porch and and uh <laughs> jumps in the dog's face and of course the dog is startled beyond belief and runs away and the cat even chases it a little bit so that's kind of what you see in the in the video now later you see pictures um not in the video but you see you see pictures somewhere on the website I don't think it was video I think it was just on that website uh, where it showed uh, uh, stitches on skin, and at least the assumption was that these were sh- they were showing you the wounds on the child that was that were caused by the dog, whether that's actual again or not again we we'll just make the assumption that it is so yes, the cat did uh, act very much out of character cats generally don't uh, do that sort of thing uh, they're not uh, they 're not genetically uh you know made that way, so the question is that uh, why you know why did the cat do that and there could be several reasons um, you know animals have free will like the rest of us uh, a cat has has consciousness, and it could very well just been a one of those unusual things that a that a uh, consciousness can choose to do you know the cat has free will and it may have just decided that uh, that was a child that was kind of a, a part of its Pride, if you will, a part of its family, and that uh, it would you know, try to scare the dog away, which it was successful at doing. So it may have just been a cat growing up, because cats are here, and dogs, and horses, and other kinds of beings. There you are know, bumblebees and, and whatever. They're here to grow up just like we are. So they have choices, and when they have a choice of, of what to do, they they have to you know, follow their intent, and if it's a good choice, if it's something about other instead of self, then that helps them grow up. So all consciousness is in the same boat that we're in. It's just doing it at different levels and under different circumstances. And, of course, other conscious, every consciousness has a different, uh, um, you know, abilities and capacities and, and that sort of thing. So cats are not human. They don't go through the same kind of logical process that human would go through. And we don't want to anthropomorphize the cat, but the cat at some level could have processed this, decided that the right thing to do was to try to help the child and uh, scare the dog, and uh, that uh, that worked. So that could have been one one reason, just a cat doing the, the right thing for the right reason at the right time. Good for the cat. Another reason, one that uh, that uh, Oliver brought up in his in his question, uh, Donna hasn't read yet, but. Uh, and that is, would the larger consciousness system maybe help the cat come to that decision? You know, larger consciousness system decides, you know, that uh, it shouldn't happen that this child get mauled by the dog, and it therefore energizes the cat, gives that idea to the cat that it should do that, and, and the cat follows it. Yes, that can happen. Larger consciousness system can put ideas in your head, can send you intuitive messages that make you feel like what you need to do is is this or that or where you need to go or be is, is uh, something we all have experienced these uh, kind of bolts out of the blue it's called with, with our intuition and certainly a cat being conscious is, is uh, likely to get that kind of a of a, a bolt out of the blue intuition that is mitigate or that is um, created by the larger consciousness system so it could be, Either of those, and I think there was one more issue that. Uh, see, I've cheated. I've looked at some of these questions ahead of time. That's that's why i say. saying this. You probably have another one for me, Donna. Um,
0: I don't. I um. I might have missed that one. Do you have the third part? Let me check here. Let me have a look. Or perhaps Oliver. Um,
1: yeah, let, let me just read it myself. Um, there yeah. was one more part. Um, you have cats and dogs yourself. Have you ever tried to communicate with your own cats and dogs through telepathy, for example, to find out why they showed unusual behavior, like for example that cat, and on what level is communication with pets and dogs possible? Okay. Yes, I have communicated with with uh, with animals, cats and dogs specifically probably more than others because those are the animals I'm around more than others. And the nature of the communication, of course, like all uh, such communications, is telepathic. And telepathic uh, communications are not um, language-based. You don't get strings of, of words most of the time. Sometimes you can, but most of the time you just get ideas, feelings, kind of overall concepts. You get metaphors, symbols that sort of thing, and it would be possible, particularly then, that Cat was probably kind of a little, um, you know, excited and, and uh, geared up for that act and probably would have been in a state that you could have inquired why it did that and got a, gotten a sense for it, you know, at that time that it was, uh, you know, why did it do that? Now, it may not know. It's not like you say, hey, Cat, you know, wh- why would you do that? And then expect to get an answer back the cat probably just felt a need to do it, and it was just driven, you know, and you might say, well, that could have been intuitive or that could have been just a choice that the cat made. But in any case, it probably came sudden, and it was just something it had to do, you know, and it it wasn't that it thought about it, decided that maybe it should uh, try to scare that dog away because the child should get hurt, it was probably just suddenly it, had the, it knew, it had the urge or the need to do what it did, and it, and it did it. So it really didn't think about itself or whether it might get hurt or how hurt the child was or would the dog continue or would the dog stop or would the people who were outside come and help. And the, the cat would not have gone through all that sort of stuff. It just would have suddenly gotten the, the notion that that's what it had to do. And from you know, as we talk about it, I'm going back and, and uh, you know trying to re- redo the process and see uh, you know what the cat's thinking. But I don't get anything that's particularly linear linear at all. I just um, you know get a cat that suddenly felt like it had to it had to go do something. So yes, you can do that with dogs. You can kind of find out what how they're feeling about things. Uh, you can get the sense of that feeling, whether they're frightened or whether they're perturbed or excited. Uh, all of that's emotional content, and you can pick up that emotional content. Uh, there are people who, are, who kind of specialize at interacting with animals like that, uh, you know, horse whispers, dog whispers, whatever they're called. And uh, they become sensitive to that because they open themselves up to it, and they practice it. And if anybody wanted to open themselves up to it and practice it, you too would get sensitive and be able to uh, have a a, uh, you know, a communication with an animal. And the people who are very close to their animals do that already intuitively. Because they feel so close to them, they do share a lot of intuitive uh, uh, things. You know, uh, Rupert Sheldrake had, a, had an experiment where he showed that uh, dogs were aware when their uh, owners were, you know, We're on their way home, and that's because dogs uh, are very close to their people. Their people mean a lot to them, and they are very intuitive. They, they, unlike us, don't discount their intuition. As we get intuition and kind of urges or nudges to to do something or understand something, um, sometimes we just do it, and sometimes we look at it with our intellects and then we analyze it, and then we blow it off because it doesn't particularly make rational sense to us. We can't justify it rationally. Well, a dog doesn't do that. If it gets an intuition, they listen to those intuitions because that's just part of their input. To them, it's not that an intellect has to verify that it's rational first before they can deal with it. They don't function that way, so they're a lot better at receiving intuitive messages and acting on them. It's it's just a normal thing for a dog to do, and it's not nearly as normal for a person to do that. So it's not necessarily that the dog has a talent that we humans don't have. It's just the dog exercises that capability more often and with less intellectual interference than we do.
0: All right, we'll move on to the next question then. The next question is from Justin. Um, these next two questions, actually one from Justin, one from Adam, are to do with TMI. Uh, the first question from Justin is um, TMI being the Monroe Institute. Justin ha- was recently nudged to listen to the Explorer tape number 16 again, in which you were experiencing a meditative state or um, in the larger reality. He um, is experimenting within this and based. He's asking, if based on your experiences, do you have any words of wisdom, advice, or input in relation to this state, and how he might proceed in experimenting further?
1: Okay. And the state that uh, he was talking about was one of clarity. And uh, as I understood his, his question, I did I did read that one. Uh, he gets he he will get to a state where suddenly everything. Is as clear as if he were wide awake. In other words, he comes out of the fog. When we meditate, we tend to get in a foggy state because we're losing our connection with the physical senses. Okay? We're not getting sense to anything. We start shutting that off. We're not concerned with what we see. We close our eyes. We ignore what we hear and, and basically just let it go so we don't process it. And the same with everything else. So our, as far as our physical awareness goes, it tends to get foggier and foggier. So we have this erroneous idea that meditation, um, you can tell when your meditation is getting good by the depth of the fog. You know, the foggier it gets, then, well, I'm really in a deep state because everything else is really foggy. And that is a, um, an erroneous belief, a good meditation state, doesn't have to be a foggy state at all. It doesn't have to be right on a threshold between you know, being awake and being asleep. It's not hanging out right on that edge like we're hypnagogic things going right the edge before you fall asleep. And many of us think that that's where the meditative state needs to be, right on the edge of losing consciousness in the fog. And that's wrong. You can wake up and be perfectly awake in that state to where you feel just like you're lying down. Let's say you are lying down someplace or sitting in a chair. You feel like you're just sitting there in that chair and you're completely awake. If you want to, you can focus on what your sense perceptions are. You can you can listen to see what's going on in the house or or outside on the street, or you can just drop that and it disappears or you can focus on things that are in the non-physical and then all the physical data just kind of disappears. But whatever you put your focus on is perfectly clear. And that is a much more useful altered state of consciousness than one where you're on the edge of losing consciousness and trying to balance on that edge without falling over into unconsciousness or without being too conscious so you become aware of the physical reality better to have this perfectly clear awake state where what you get, what you attach to the data stream that you attach to is determined by your intent. So if you want to listen with your physical ears to the traffic in the street, you can listen to it minutely. You can hear things that ordinarily you would never hear. You can hear all sorts of detail because now you've focused your intent on that hearing or on that singing, if you will. or you can focus it away from physical reality into some non-physical thing, and immediately all the physical stuff just drops, it's just gone. It's not like um, you know it, it, it ever existed. You're just now have your focus someplace else. So you're able to focus that intent precisely. That's better than teetering on the edge of of consciousness and uh, kind of existing in the fog. That was one of the big aha moments for me, when I realized that uh, fog was not necessary. Fog was not an indicator of a really great state. um, And and it was just a belief, because you believe that that's the case. If you're not in the fog, then you're not doing it right. You try to get in the fog, because that's where you believe the the best state is. I think this is, this is kind of the heart of the question. And he's asking, is that a good state or is he doing it right? And yes, uh, it sounds like it's perfect. sounds like you're doing it just right and you've, you've learned something that is going to make all the rest of your meditations and, and uh, uh, focusing that consciousness, whether it's in the non-physical or the physical, going to make it much uh, a more powerful focus.
0: Would you like to add anything to that, Justin? Any further questions? Okay, Um, I'm going to divert from the next team. OK, go ahead. Thank you. I have one question. Uh, This is
1: Pali. I'm I'm sorry. Pali. Yeah. So the question was, let's say I
0: am in this clear state but still I am not able to focus on to just one thing. Is Would you say that is some sort of a clear state, what you described, and then if it is, would you have some advice for me how I can train myself to focus on to just one single thing to be able to switch, for example, to, into the anti-MP, anti-MPR, sorry,
1: Yes, it's just practice, it's, you know, the very first time you get to a a state of point consciousness where you're just floating in the void, most people will first experience that for five seconds and then it's gone. Well, you need to work on that to where you can experience it for as long as you need to, for, for a half hour or an hour, if that's how long you want to be floating in the void without any interruptions. That's just a matter of practice. You would have to try to hold that state steady and uh, for a longer and longer period of time and you will get better at it. But as long as your attention is jumping around, okay, you're in a clear state and you can really hear things out on the street really well and you can uh, you know, do something, uh, maybe uh, healing uh, somebody uh, uh, working with the uh, Probable Future Database, and any of those things seem to be uh, clear to you, but you can't hold them very long. They pop from one to the other to the other, and your mind, your consciousness is not very stable. Uh, it's really not your consciousness that's unstable. It's your intent that's not very stable. Your intent keeps flopping around because what you intend, it's the information that you focus on. That you make in intentions of what you're going to do with that information. That's what's jumping around, and it's just a matter of practice. You have to just work it up. It, it takes a long time. It may not be something that comes quickly to you, but if you if it's only ten seconds before it jumps, then try to get it to you know to twelve seconds, and then to fifteen seconds. And it's uh, it's nothing really I can tell you. There's not really a technique so much that you can do other than just practice it. Thank you very much.
0: Okay. Um- John had a question that concerns clarity as well. And I think you just spoke to this, but the question is, what are some of the ways we should focus on utilizing the non-physical superset once we begin exploring in order to induce positive growth?
1: Okay, um, what uh, John is asking is that, okay, say that I can get to this point state. Now what do I do? You know, what, what do I do with it? And there's a there's a couple of things here is one in the beginning until you and when I say in the beginning, I mean, before you can just hang in that state for as long as you want to. That's in the beginning. In the beginning, just hang there, just lengthen the time, make the state a very stable state that you can get to it and you can stay in it as long as you want to stay in it. Uh, Once you have it as a stable state, then you should start thinking about what do I want to, what else can I do here? Now, it's a wonderful place to go and rest, and you come back energized and relaxed and feeling good. It's a wonderful place just to hang out, but you don't have to just hang out there. You could do other things, and if it's early in your experimenting, I would say you should try to do things that are evidential. But that means things that you can look back at later and see whether indeed what you saw is really what was there or did that uh, healing that you were doing uh, really work? Did they get better and or did they get worse or not change? So do things that are evidential. Later on, if you're just going to travel and explore the larger consciousness system, that's not evidential. There's nothing you can you can uh, look at to tell you whether or not that's um, something you've created or something that's outside of you. So first, you need a lot of experience, a lot of evidential things. And then you don't have a problem with with whether it's something you're imagining or something that is coming from outside of you when you're doing things that don't have evidence, like exploring the larger consciousness system. Now, when you're in that state, it's not the time to start thinking about what it is you, you want to do. You should have thought about that earlier, before you went into the state, decided what would be a good thing to do, the person you'd like to try to heal, the place you'd like to try to go, uh, uh, whatever it is you want to do, um, and kind of program it in your mind. So when when I get into that state, here are the things I'm going to do. Here's three things and here's kind of the priority. I'd like to do this one first, then that one, then the other, and come up with those and have them ready so that when you get there and you get this idea, all right, now what should I do? You already have a, an answer that is, has already been uh, pre-developed for that. Because when you're in that state, even though you are thinking, you can, your, your intellect, okay, your cognitive function is working, because you can decide, well, what would I like to do now? So that's your cognitive function, but that's cognitive function at the being level. It's not really the same as your cognitive function at the intellectual level. And at the intellectual level, of course, you have all this analytical access. When you're in the being level, like you are when you're in the point consciousness state, you don't think the same way. You don't have all that same uh, analytical access. Everything is more direct and straightforward. You're not. Uh, you're not wheeling and dealing with your with your intellect anymore. So it's kind of hard to come up with what what are you going to do. It's very difficult to come up with if you're just there and haven't thought about it ahead of time. So I think that's the key. Think about it ahead of time. Come up with some things you want to do. Um, someone you'd like to go visit. Someone, uh, you know, uh, that's you're close to, that you'd just like to spend some time with, or someone you'd need to interact with and talk to uh, someone you'd like to feel someplace you'd like to see make it evidential if you can um, and have it pre-programmed because your analytic function isn't uh, really engaged when you're in that being level state of point consciousness
0: does that answer everything for you John
1: yes that was very helpful
0: Okay, we'll move on to the next one. Tom, the next question has to do with you and uh, Bob Monroe. This is from Adam. Um, The standardized test that you were both subjected to, um, does this mean that two different people with their intents integrated with the larger systems will do the same thing in the same situation? Is there one right intent? Does this one right intent lead to all the same right actions?
1: No, it's not so much that two individuals will do the same thing. This, this, uh, this test is like any test. You know, a whole bunch of people are in, uh, you know, math class, and at the end of the semester they all take a test to see how much they've learned, how much they've comprehended, and uh, each one of them, we'll do something different it would be very odd if every one of them had exactly the same answers even though you know even though 10 people say you've got question number 5 right all 10 of those did it a little differently unless it's a very simple test you know if you're just doing adding numbers together then it looks like everybody did it the same way but if it's a, a something that has a little more complexity to it everybody will approach it and execute it just a little differently so 10 right answers isn't 10 duplications, but uh, 10 different ways of, of coming up, of coming to the same uh, conclusion. So that's the way it is in these, these tests. Uh, some of them are standardized in that I have run across two or three, sometimes four people who have had the exact same series of experiments, of, of experiences, I mean, exact same sequence of experiences that I've had where you've been put in a particular situation, given a certain uh, kind of briefing, if you will, about what this situation is and what it is you're supposed to do, and then you're left alone to see how you will react and interact with it. What will you do? And I think 10 people going through this would probably all do it differently, but they may all get the right answer. But there's also wrong answers. You can do it badly. You can act out of fear, act out of ego. Um, if you do that, then that's the wrong answer. If you act out of caring or um, you know, without fear, without ego, without belief, then that's the right answer, however you construe that. So with Bob and I, we were given the exact same sequence of tests. And it wasn't just one test. It was a whole sequence of tests. And if you got one right, then they'd give you another one. And if you got that one right, you'd get the next one. And when you got one wrong, you were done. test was over because each one was progressively more difficult or more demanding on you to uh, to interact without ego or fear. So that's kind of what it was. And, and the tests were the same. We got the same setup, the same images. It was... Obviously, an identical setup for us, and we got to a point where um, we both stopped at the same place. And I don't know whether that's because that was the end, or because we both failed to get the right answer, you know, on that particular question. But uh, so no, it's not that the two that people have to have exactly the same reaction to a situation they can have their own personal reaction but it has to be say without fear or ego or belief if your if if your answers right or if your reaction was was correct and there's probably a hundred different ways to do that
0: that strider Tom G. would like to know, is it possible for you to give an example of one of those test questions?
1: Well, sure. Uh, in my book, I do give an example of, uh, of some of them. There was, uh, uh, well, I'll give you one that was trivial, and I can give you one that was, that was uh, a little more difficult. Uh, one of them, it just, you know, you are out of body, and, and suddenly um, a being comes up, and offers you um, I have something you know that you don't know an experience you've never had something that you could you know that you could learn would you like to learn this thing and of course he's not telling you what it is it's just would you like to learn this thing and you're given this sense of oh it is something significant that you could learn or you know would you like you know some other kind of uh, you know Treasure, right? Would you like, uh, you know, money, of course, isn't a thing when you're out of body, but uh, something that you might enjoy or want. So that was the choice. And the right answer is, you know, you'd rather have have something to learn than something to have fun with, something that would entertain you. So that's the choice. Would you rather learn something or be entertained? That's a trivial choice, okay? Learning something valuable is much more important than being entertained. Now, a more difficult choice uh, one of these tests, was there was, there were, uh, the setup was that you, there were a lot of people who were very destitute and in great need, great need health-wise, uh, you know, didn't have enough food to eat, they didn't understand what was going on. There was just a lot of people, and they were immensely deprived and needy. And I was in a position where I could be of help help provide them with food or shelter or understanding or other things that they that they needed. And I had been doing this. And I'd been doing this for some time, uh, helping do that. So you know in your mind you can make that, you know, you are what, uh, you know, an aid worker in some place where people are starving to death, you know, if you, you want to kind of make a, a metaphor out of it. And then the the question came, and this was the test question, is Should you stay here doing this, because these people depend on you. If you're not doing it, then there isn't going to be anybody else to replace you. They're just not going to have it done. Should you stay here and continue to do this and serve these people's needs, or should you move on, go on to uh, bigger challenges? Because you've got this system. You know how to meet their needs. You can find the shelter and the the food, whatever. You've done it, and, and it's no longer a challenge to you. It's something you can do, and these people do depend on you. But do you continue to, to serve them or do you leave them to their own, uh, you know, whatever? They have to get along the best they can. And maybe somebody will come along to help and you go on and go and, uh, on with your life. And that was a very hard question, you know. How do you, how do you balance those things? Your responsibilities to um, others and um, your responsibility to uh, your, own, uh, your own growth. And the answer. That uh, turned out to be the right answer because I did get more more tests after that. Was that it was time to go on? That you cannot um, um, you, know, you get to a point where you where your idea of helping and not necessarily changing the world, but being a value in the world is is uh, not as important as you're continuing on with your growth. That the world just is as it is and sometimes you just have to accept that that's the way it is and that these people will get by or they will not. You know, If they all die because you're not there, then that's just part of their process that they're in for this, this experience. And uh, they will have that. What you've done is just changed it. It's not like they would have had it if you weren't there. It's different now. And in your mind, the difference is much better. But is it necessarily that much better in the big picture, you see. It's obviously better in our little picture, but maybe yes, maybe not in the big picture. So you can get trapped into uh, thinking that you're making a difference in the little picture when the difference you're making in the little picture really isn't all that significant in the big picture. So that was the assessment that had to be made, and uh, and the idea was to move on. So. That's a very difficult question and it would depend on the circumstances. So now don't take my answer as a general answer that applies to everything. This was very specific to the situation that I was given and, and the details of that particular situation. I'm not saying that's necessarily the right answer in all cases or make that a general, uh, you know, a general right way to approach things. It was very specific to this particular test. So given this test question, that was the right answer. So does that, does that give you like a couple of examples? And, you know, most of our dreams are like this all the time. We'll have dreams that we're just thrown into a scenario. Suddenly there we are, you know, what, um, facing some kind of danger, some kind of situation, and we know the building's on fire, and, you know, we feel like we need to help everybody get out of the building. So we go around and say, hey, the building's on fire. Everybody leave, and the people look at us and ignore us. Then what do we do? Do we drag them out? Do we shout louder? Uh, you know, what are, what do we do next? And dreams are often like that. Those are just learning scenarios where you're thrown into a situation where here you are. You have to stand up and give a speech, but oh, you forgot to put your clothes on, or uh, you forgot your speech. You know, it's at uh, it's at home. You left it. Now what are you going to do? So you have to deal with these kinds of anxieties or issues, fears, and uh, Tests are very much like that. A lot of our dreaming is, in fact, testing. Uh, And I say test. I don't necessarily mean in an academic sense. Somebody's got a scoreboard and they're going to be graded and whatever. But test just to see where you are, because if the system knows where you are, then they can help provide you with experiences that will be just the right experiences to help you grow the experience is too hard, you probably won't be able to grab it and deal with it. If it's too easy, you won't learn much from it. So the system would like to know just where you are so it can give you just what you need to optimize your growth. So if you are being worked with by a system, then you get those kinds of things. If you haven't got to that point yet and you're just, you know, whatever happens, happens and you're dealing with it, then you may not get so many of those tests. it just depends on the individual and what phase of the learning they 're in, and those sorts of things can come and go. You may get a lot of them this you know this year and none of them next year, and then more of them again the year after that so i don 't want people to start judging and say well i haven 't had any of those yet. I must not be here and you know don 't make comparisons that 's why i don 't like talking about my experiences because it messes people up. They start making comparisons about uh, where am I in my growth? If he said this and that, then I should be experiencing these sort of things, and I never get any tests. So either I'm so brilliant I don't need them, or you know I'm so low in the in the uh, system that it's not worth their time. And all of that's just ego, and it gets in the way, and it's going to make it harder for you to grow than if I never said anything and you didn't. Your ego didn't uh, jump into these kinds of comparisons and analysis that egos always do. So that's. Yeah, that's, I guess, about as much as, as, as we're saying on that subject.
0: Tom, would you say intuition was a way of knowing when to help people without taking away their lessons?
1: Yes, entirely. I mean, intuition is the, is the key thing. By that, I mean, if you, try, if you have to figure these problems out If you're having a test and you have to figure it out intellectually, then that's not a good sign. It's not what you think you should do. It's who you are at the being level. What is it that you just do? What is the answer you you come to? What feels right to you? What's the right thing to do at the being level? Not what's the right way to, you know, how do you figure out the right answer at the intellectual level? So all of this works basically in an intuitive sense because it's working with your being level. That's why... These tests are done in the dream world. They're done in the dream reality frame because, in the dream reality frame, frame, you are not working with your intellect. For the same reason, you have to plan what you're going to do once you get in that uh, altered state of point consciousness, because your intellect isn't really working there. You're at the being level, and uh, it's it's a it's a you can still think, but it's a different kind of thinking process when you're in the when you're in uh, the dream reality frame, you just act. You get thrown into the situation. Here I am, I've got to give a speech. I've walked out onto the stage. I reach down for my notes and the pocket's empty. There's nothing there. All right, and right away, is it fear? Or do you just accept the situation and go on and do the best you can? Are uh, you mortified? Do you, you know, cry and run away? I mean, how do you react? However you react, It is going to be the way you are. You'll react at the being level. You're not going to think it through and come up with an intellectual solution. It's strictly how you are. That's why they give the tests there, because you can't game the test. You can't figure out what the right answer is and then do that. You have to be the right answer. That's another reason why some people have guides that refuse to talk to them because the guide doesn't want to interact with you at the intellectual level, because at the intellectual level is all about image and form and what you think. It's not about you and who you are, and that's not where you learn. So if it's going to be a learning experience or even a valid test, it needs to be at the being level, not at the intellectual level. So many guides will will give you uh, intuitive connections, because your intuition's connected at the being level not at the intellectual level.